Well, one of my favorite things that we do here at Lakes Free are the opportunities that we have to hear faith stories from, from people within our church family. And uh, it's awesome to see how God is at work in people's lives and to, to hear the ways that he is using them. And, and, uh, and today we have another opportunity to hear from uh, one of our friends here at Lakes Free, uh, Erica Herring. She's been a member of our church for a few years. She is active serving in our children's ministry and uh, just a great friend. So would you please welcome Erica Herring this morning as she shares her faith story with us. Thanks, Erica. Well, good morning. As Pastor Jason said, my name is Erica Herring, and I want to tell you a story about God's faithful pursuit of me and how I found a real, how I found real joy in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I was raised in Southern California, where I was blessed with wonderful parents who provided my siblings and I with a great childhood. As we grew up, they taught us the importance of um, education and the value of hard work. And yet, despite these blessings, there was still something missing in my life and something that my parents alone couldn't give me. This is when God began to pursue me. We all probably have somebody in our life who has impacted us in a special way. For me, that person is my dear friend, Renee, who's here with me this morning. Um, my faith story began as a little girl on the preschool playground in Whittier, California, when Renee said to me one day, you know, we're sisters in God's way. No, we aren't, I replied, and I thought it was strange of her to say such a thing. But it was in that moment that God planted a seed in my heart. Although I didn't recognize myself as being part of God's family at that time, I look back on that day and realize that even then, as a young girl, God was pursuing me. Little did I know my friend would play a pivotal role in my story. As I moved into my junior high years, my priorities revolved around being accepted and popular, which led me to make choices that I didn't feel good about, and I began to dislike who I was becoming. But even then, God was still pursuing me. In seventh grade, my friend Renee invited me to go with her to summer camp, and it was there that God first captured my heart. I trusted in Jesus that week, and I learned the joy of having a new life in Christ and a personal relationship with God. As I reflect on that time, I believe my commitment to Jesus was real and transformation that happened in my heart was genuine. However, I was young in my relationship with God and I didn't truly know how to live a life of faith. As I moved into my high school years, while everyone else would look at me and see a young woman who was excelling outwardly, I continued to struggle tremendously with who I was and the life I was living. I made many poor choices during these years that would have a lasting impact on me. Looking back, I can see now that even in my struggles, God hadn't given up on me. While I wasn't living faithfully for him, he was still showing his faithfulness to me. That faithfulness came through the Holy Spirit's conviction in my heart about the poor choices that I was making. I had been living life my way, and I didn't have any peace. By my senior year in high school, I was exhausted. Once again, God used my friend Renee in his relentless pursuit of me. As high school drew to a close, Renee recognized the hurt in my life. And one day she gave me a card with a couple of Bible verses written on it. This time, instead of dismissing her gesture, I read those verses and something was rekindled inside of me. I decided to pick up my Bible. I was tired of feeling empty and hurting inside. And as I read God's word, I began to realize that there was a gaping hole in my heart that only God could fill. 
God has been pursuing me all along, and now, or God had been pursuing me all along, and now I wanted to pursue him. I soon got connected with an awesome church youth group, and I discovered the joy that exists in a community of friends united by Christ. The Holy Spirit was truly alive in me, and I knew that I didn't ever want to live without him again. My college years would bring new challenges, and while I was committed to my faith, I still found myself making decisions that didn't honor God. I struggled through broken relationships that brought much hurt, and I began to doubt my ability to live a life of faith and wondered if that was even possible. But again, God didn't give up on me. With each challenge, I continued to find hope in God's word. In my mid-20s, my priorities changed and turned to establishing myself in a career and finding a man whom I could marry. And once again, it was my friend Renee, my sister in God's way, who God would use to intervene in my life. Renee had moved to Minnesota and was about to marry a great Christian guy who happens to be Pastor Jason's brother, Jared. And after meeting some of Jared's friends, Renee noticed a guy who was strong in his faith and also happened to be very good looking. (laughs) After mailing a photo of him to me, this was before smartphones, um, I gave my approval and Renee set us up on a blind date, which was blind for him, but not for me. On my next visit to Minnesota, I would meet my future husband, Mark, and God would use this relationship to change the trajectory of my life. Mark and I have been married now for 13 years, and Jesus has been at the center of our relationship. He has blessed us with four beautiful children on this earth and another one in heaven. We have seen his faithfulness and power in our lives time and again. God's word, the Bible, and our participation at church are the foundation of our family's growing faith. I stand here today only by the grace of God. He never gave up on me. And while I'm I'm still not perfect, I still struggle to honor him consistently in my daily life. I know that my Savior is faithful, and I know that life is so much better with him than without. My prayer today is that each of you would know how precious your story and your life is to, to God, and I pray that you too would know the joy and peace that is found in living your life with Jesus. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erica. You know, the thing that I love about Erica's story is it's a reminder to us of how God can transform an entire life, even a family, uh, through the simple act of a, of a faithful friend sowing gospel seeds in that person's life. And uh, even, uh, you know, just a, a little girl on the playground sharing with her friend. And then in junior high and in high school and in college, just never giving up, pointing her back to the promises of God. And uh, it's just a powerful thing when you realize what God does through average ordinary believers who step out in faith trusting him, sharing the good news, the hope of Jesus with others. You know, Erica's testimony is so powerful because she wasn't saved by a big evangelist like Billy Graham. She wasn't saved by a, you know, professional apologist. She wasn't saved by a a pastor's sermon on a Sunday morning. She was saved because she had a friend who cared enough to tell her about Jesus. And, you know, that's how God has grown the gospel revolution for 2,000 years. 
The gospel revolution has primarily been fueled by faithful men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit who step out in faith and believe that in sowing a simple gospel seed, they can make a difference in somebody's life for all of eternity. We're going to see this morning the example of another individual in the early church who believed just that very thing. Uh, An ordinary man, a, a volunteer in the church, a layman, who believed that walking in faith through the power of the Holy Spirit, he could do incredible things for the sake of the kingdom. And so today we're going to turn to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to see the story of Philip. And it's a powerful story. And it's a story that uh, I wanted to, to highlight today on the day where we shared Erica's faith story because uh, they just fit so well together in terms of reminding us the call of the call that all of us have as followers of Jesus, to be ambassadors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read our passage this morning for us. You can follow along on the screens behind me or in your own Bibles. And then uh, I want to come back and I want to highlight three scenes from this passage this morning. There's a lot going on here. We're not going to be able to explain it all today, but I want to highlight three scenes that really speak to our call as followers of Jesus, as ambassadors of Jesus, to take the good news to, uh, to the lost people in our own lives. So follow along as I read here, starting in Acts chapter 8. Just a little context before we begin. Remember last week, Acts chapter 7, Stephen was martyred. The very first martyr of the church gave a powerful testimony to the gospel and and went, went to his death proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Messiah, the Savior, and Lord. And now today we find what happens following Stephen's execution. Verse 1 tells us, Saul was there approving of his execution. Remember, Saul was one of the ringleaders of the persecution in the early church. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. And he amazed the people of Samaria, saying he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time. He had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is a great passage. Story of Philip, his ministry in Samaria. And again, I love this story because Philip was just an average, ordinary believer in the church. He was a layman. He was a volunteer who simply sought to be obedient to our call to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, taking the gospel with us wherever we go. And here in the story of Philip, I want to highlight three scenes that we see in our passage this morning. The, the, the first thing we see here in the story of Philip is we see the gospel scattered, yet faithfully sown. Acts chapter 8 begins with this terrible persecution of the church. Stephen has just been martyred, and Saul and his henchmen are ravaging the church, going from house to house, locking up Christians, throwing them in prison. And the church begins to be scattered, fleeing for their lives, leaving Jerusalem, fleeing Judea, going even into Samaria to flee this persecution. But friends, notice what Luke tells us here in chapter 8. They didn't just flee They fled and they took the gospel with them. The gospel may have been scattered by the persecution, but those who were scattered were faithful in their ongoing sowing of the gospel. 
In fact, what we see taking place here in the beginning of chapter 8 is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise to his people right at the very beginning of Acts. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you recall, Jesus in his final words to his followers told his people, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And friends, Jesus had prophesied what was now being experienced. God in his sovereign wisdom ordained that it would be through the persecution of the church that the message of the gospel would spread. And it was because of the persecution experienced in Jerusalem that the church was scattered and they were scattered to places like Samaria and people like Philip fled to Samaria, but he didn't flee alone. He took the message of the gospel with him and he began to sow seeds of the gospel, bringing joy to this previously unreached region, all because God had ordained the spread to take place through persecution. You know, friends, it's really interesting when you think about the reality of how God has used persecution throughout history to strategically advance the gospel revolution in our world. In fact, persecution has been one of God's primary means of spreading the gospel. You would think maybe evangelists like Billy Graham or maybe great apologists, you know, like J. Warner Wallace and others. But no, God's primary means of advancing the gospel over the last 2,000 years has been through the persecuted church, bearing faithful testimony and witness, no matter the opposition that they face. Remember, friends, Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. And it certainly isn't. Back on Easter Sunday morning, I shared that quote from Napoleon Bonaparte, who said Charlemagne, Caesar, Alexander, Caesar and, and Augustus, all of these great men have earned their empires, but they earned them through violence and war and bloodshed. But Jesus has conquered the world through love and a message of hope and grace. And God has used the reality of the persecuted church to spread the message of the cross. In fact, in the past 100 years, There have been more martyrs for the faith than in the previous 2,000 years combined. Just think about that. More people have died in persecution following Jesus in the last 100 years than in all 2,000 years combined before. But also at the same time, God has advanced the gospel to the very ends of the earth in a way that has never taken place before. He moves through persecution. One of the key figures in our passage this morning is the central figure in our passage this morning is a man named Philip. And Philip is an awesome example to all of us today about an average ordinary follower of Jesus, faithful in his task. You know, last week we looked at the life of Stephen and the ministry of Stephen. And there are a lot of parallels between the, the life and ministry of Stephen and Philip. And it's really interesting the fact that Luke devotes so much time and attention to these two average ordinary believers right in the heart of the book of Acts. You know, think about some of the parallels that we see here in our passage between Luke and St- or between Stephen and Philip. Philip, just like Stephen, was a layman who was tasked with the care of widows. Remember, these guys showed up at a church business meeting. 
and they found out that there was a need in the church. The widows weren't being cared for. And so their brothers and sisters in Christ voted on seven men to take up the task of caring for the widows in the church. Stephen and Philip were among them. And what were these guys' response to the call to care for the widows? They were faithful. They were obedient. They were gracious. They said, yeah, there's a need. I'm in. Sign me up. Because that's what Jesus would do. They were faithful in following their master and caring for the least of these among them. We also see here Philip paralleling his friend Stephen in that he was faithful in the small things. And so God empowered him to do even more. You know, so often, friends, we desire the glory. We want the big job. We want the big attention-getting ministry. And God says, if you're faithful with the small things, then I'll entrust you with even more. Philip was faithful in serving the widows of the church, and so God then elevated him to this position of taking the gospel to an unreached people group. What a great model for us. We see here Philip, thirdly, a man who understood that service in the church and our call to evangelism are not mutually exclusive. You know, so many times I talk to Christians who, who say, well, you know, Pastor Jason, I, I don't have the gift of evangelism. That's, that's, that's not my calling. I'll leave that to the professionals. But friends, remember, Jesus called all of us to the task of the Great Commission. Every single one of us was called, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. All of us have been given that call. It's not just the task of the professional evangelist or the one with the spiritual gift in evangelism or the, or the trained pastors. No, Stephen and Philip understood that as laymen, even those called to serve, as, serve widows in the church, their primary calling above all else was to share the gospel with lost people. Serving in the church is a great thing, friends, but don't ever make the mistake of using that as a substitute for your call to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, we see Philip here, an ordinary guy who was used by God in extraordinary ways, fulfilling the Great Commission, taking the gospel to an unreached people group in Samaria. Again, friends, this is an ordinary guy. And I don't think it was any coincidence that Luke devoted two of the longest chapters in the book of Acts right in the center of the book. I mean, it's like right in the heart, he devotes two huge chunks of his book to two ordinary guys, laymen, volunteers in the church, not apostles, right? You would think, you know, you're wasting this time. Tell us about Peter. Tell us about John. Tell us about Paul. No, he uses two central chapters to tell us the stories of ordinary men who were faithful to the task of sharing the gospel with lost people. I think Luke wanted to tell us something here, friends. I think Luke was communicating a value here, a priority here. Friends, this task isn't just for Pastor Jason. This is our task. This is our calling. All of us have a role to play in the advancement of the gospel, sharing the good news. And friends, if God can use an average ordinary guy like Philip to bring the gospel to a whole unreached region, how might God choose to use you if you would just step out in obedience and faith, believing that through your testimony, 
God can make an incredible difference. You know, what kind of passions has God given you? What kind of talents has God given you? What ways might God use you to advance the glory of his kingdom? It's very interesting, just this past Monday, I went to a funeral up in Nisswa, up in northern Minnesota. My mom's dear friend of 40-plus years, a woman named Pam Sulak, had just passed away of, of cancer. And at her funeral service, it was an awesome testament to a life of faithfulness. I learned something about my mom's friend that I didn't even know. For the last 10 years after she had retired, when they had moved up north to their family's cabin, Pam decided, you know what, I'm still young, I'm still vibrant, I still want to make a difference. I don't just want to sit around at my lake and, you know, pine my days away. I want to make a difference for the kingdom. And so Pam decided that in her retirement, she was going to start a ministry. And she started a ministry making mittens out of used wool sweaters. She would travel to thrift shops and buy used wool sweaters. She would collect used wool sweaters from her friends. And she, over the last 10 years, had sewn thousands of pairs of wool mittens from donated used wool sweaters. And then she would travel to craft fairs around the Midwest and sell her mittens. She sold tens of thousands of pairs of mittens over the last 10 years, raising tens and tens of thousands of dollars, every single penny of which she gave away to the cause of Christian missions and to her church and to the local food shelf in Brainerd. Why? Because this was a woman who didn't want to waste her life. This was a woman who was committed to our calling to sow gospel seeds. She wasn't a trained evangelist. She just said to the Lord, Lord, this is my passion. This is my gift. I'm not going to stand up in front of thousands, but you know what I can do? I can sow mittens. And I can give that money to ministries that are sending missionaries around the world to share the gospel. Friends, don't ever believe the lie that God can't use you in powerful ways. If we all decide to ask the question, Lord, what gifts, what talents, what abilities have you given me? Lord, how might you use me for the sake of the gospel? Friends, God is in the habit of taking average, ordinary people and doing extraordinary things when we step out in faith and obedience. The second scene we see in our passage this morning is the gospel spread but dreadfully squandered spread but dreadfully squandered. Here in verses 18 through 25, we find a man named Simon. Simon was a man steeped in the occult. He was a sorcerer. He was a man who used the power of Satan to his own advantage, for his own privilege, to spread his fame, to make money, to control people. And Philip brings the gospel into Samaria and people are being saved left and right. And Luke tells us that even Simon, this occultist, this sorcerer, heard the message of the gospel and even Simon believed. And Simon was baptized. And you would think, wow, what a great story. What an amazing testimony. But friends, what we find in the story of Simon is a man who squandered his opportunity for salvation. Here was a man who sought to buy and bargain for God's blessings. And in doing so, he squandered the greatest blessing of all, the opportunity for new life, for eternal life. 
You see, Simon was like a lot of people today who who flock to the prosperity gospel preachers and the faith healers in our world, seeking to buy God's blessing. People who say, you know, if I just plant a seed of faith, if if I just donate enough money to this guy, I'll, I'll receive God's blessing. Maybe God will heal me. Maybe God will make me prosperous. Simon was like those who try to bargain with God. Lord, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do fill in the blank. Lord, you know, if you'll just heal me of my disease, Lord, I promise I'll, I'll go to church faithfully the rest of my life. Lord, if you give me this job I'm trying to get, my dream job, I promise I'll tithe 10% faithfully the rest of my life. Lord, if you'll just let that guy fall in love with me, I promise I'll serve in VBS this summer. Friends, how often do we seek to buy God's blessings or bargain with God for his blessings? See, God gives gifts as he pleases. He gives blessings as he pleases. And we don't all get the same gifts or blessings. But what you need to understand this morning, friends, is that God's gifts are gifts. You can't earn a gift. You can't buy a gift. If you earn it or buy it, it's not a gift anymore. And so when God chooses to give good gifts or good blessings, rejoice and be thankful, but you can't do anything to buy those gifts or bargain for those gifts. And what we see here in the episode of Simon is a man who clearly had never truly embraced Jesus as the Lord. Jesus was never truly enthroned on Simon's heart. This guy is an example of someone who was a false convert. He was not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. We see that in Peter's response. Simon asked him for the same power. Give me the spirit. Look what Peter says in verse 20 and 21. Peter says to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. J.B. Phillips, in his translation of the book of Acts, he translates this passage, Peter's response to Simon, he translates it like this, to hell with you and your money. To hell with you and your money. You see, Peter saw the true heart of Simon. Peter saw the true motivations of Simon. Here's a guy whose motivations were about pride and power and plunder. How can I increase my fame? How can I increase my reputation? How can I spread my power to control more people and earn more money from them? This guy was motivated not by pursuit of Jesus, but by the selfishness in his own heart. And even in his request to Peter, after Peter rebukes him in verse 24, even in Simon's request, what does Simon say? Pray for me. You pray for me. Not, Lord, forgive me. How wrong am I? I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to humble myself before Christ. But no, no, Peter, why don't you just pray for me? This was a man who wasn't truly repentant of his sin. Now you might be thinking this morning, well, what about Simon's belief in baptism mentioned in verse 13? I mean, Pastor Jason, don't you believe that once you're saved, you're always saved? And friends, to that question, I would say absolutely. 
If a person is genuinely saved and sealed in the Holy Spirit, your salvation is secure for all of eternity. But you also have to understand this morning that it is possible to claim you're saved and think you're saved and even act like you're saved for a time when you were never truly saved to begin with. About 10 years ago, we had a man who attended our church for about a year, was active in our ABF groups, and went through our new members class wanting to become a member here at our church. By all external appearances, it looked like he was a brother in Christ. But when we sat down with him after the new members class and participated in the uh, interviews that we do with, with our elders and prospective new members, it became very clear to our elders that this man didn't understand the gospel. He had never embraced the gospel. When we asked him to share his testimony, his testimony revolved around, well, you know, ever since I was a young man, I've, I've always tried to do my best. I, I've always tried to be a good person. And, and I do a lot of good things in the community. I serve in a lot of different places. <clears throat> and his testimony was all about the good stuff he did. And we tried to coach him, you know, we tried to help him. Well, tell us, what does the gospel mean to you? What does what, what what Jesus' death on the cross mean to you? Well, you know, Jesus was a great example of, of what it means to serve others. And, and I try to serve others faithfully. I, I do so many good things in the community. And his whole testimony kept coming back to all about him and what he was doing to try to prove his worth in the, in the eyes of God. Friends, there's a lot of people like that in our world. They look like Christians. They would call themselves Christians, but they don't understand the message of the gospel. They don't understand the reality of passages like Isaiah 64, 6 that say all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. And if you are here this morning and you are basing your hope for salvation on your own good works, your good deeds, your efforts, friends, you are in big trouble today because your good works and deeds are not the standard. God's holiness and perfection are the standard. And every single one of us falls short of that standard. And this is why God in his amazing grace became a man and went to the cross taking our sin upon himself, taking our rebellion, nailing it to a cross, covering us with his shed blood so that God no longer sees the sin in Jason's heart, but he sees the shed blood of Jesus that covers up my sin, allowing me to come into his presence once again. So many people miss that reality, friends. Don't miss that reality. Your only hope is Jesus. Your only hope is embracing the gospel of Jesus. And there are a lot of false converts in our churches. People who believe they're saved, but they never truly embrace the gospel. Even Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Friends, remember, many of Jesus' most famous parables provide strong warnings about false converts. Jesus talked about wolves hiding in sheep's clothing. He talked about the seed that fell on stony ground and was choked out. He talked about sheep and goats dwelling together. He talked about the gospel net that is spread and gathers up both good and bad fish. He talked about the kingdom of God containing wheat and tares growing alongside one another. It's possible to claim you're saved and think you're saved and not truly be saved. 
Now, some of you might be thinking, well, how do I know if I'm saved? Friends, let me just suggest a few questions you can ask yourself. How do you know if you're truly saved? Number one, what are you basing your hope for salvation on? If you're basing your hope for salvation on anything but the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the free gift God offers us in his amazing grace, if you're basing your hope for salvation on your works and your righteousness and your efforts, you're not saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that it is through grace by faith that we are saved, not of works lest any man should boast. Salvation is by grace through faith. Question number two, are you grieved over your sin? Friends, God doesn't expect his people to become sinless and perfect in this world. But our sin should grieve us. A follower of Jesus who has the Lord on the throne of our hearts will be grieved over our sin. We won't wallow in our sin like a pig wallowing in the mud. We'll recognize our sin and be humbled and repentant and sorrowful over it. Number three, have you experienced growth in your walk with the Lord? Has God's grace changed you? Are you a different person today from who you were before you came to know Jesus? Because God's grace will inevitably change you. This leads me to point number five, four. Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit's fruit in your life? Galatians 5 talks about that when the Holy Spirit is living in your heart, it's going to manifest itself in fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit will increasingly be evident in you. Lastly, and maybe most significantly, do you have a hunger for God's word and worship? Friends, people who have Jesus on the throne of their heart love spending time with the Lord. They love feeding on God's word. They love joining God's people in worship. And I'll just tell you this morning, friends, if you can't answer each of these questions affirmatively today, it might be a sign that there's something missing in your heart this morning. It might be God's wake-up call to you today saying, you need to embrace the hope of the gospel, the free gift of salvation that comes from repenting of our sins and putting Jesus on the throne of our heart. Because that's the only hope, friends. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 9 through 11, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul tells us for with the heart, with the heart, with the heart, one believes and is justified. It's not about your intellectual assent. It's about who sits enthroned on the heart of your life. It's a matter of the heart, friends. Is Jesus your first love? Is he seated on the throne of your heart? Are his priorities increasingly your priorities? That's the mark of a person who has truly embraced the Lord. Our third scene this morning we see the gospel shared and joyfully savored. Let me highlight three things about Philip the evangelist here in this last scene with the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, and I put evangelist in quotes because, again, Philip wasn't a trained evangelist. He was a layman, an average ordinary guy, but he was faithful. Okay, Philip the evangelist has an angel appear to him. 
in verse 26 and 27. An angel shows up and tells Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And Philip rose and went. Here we see Philip was obedient to his call. It's really interesting, friends. Here's Philip in the middle of Samaria. Revival's breaking out all around him. And the Lord shows up through an angelic messenger and says, go down to the desert. What? Go to the, are you kidding me? We got a revival here in Samaria. People are coming to faith left and right. You want me to go where? To a desert place? What? But he doesn't argue like that, does he? He gets the call from the Lord and he goes. He's obedient to his call. What a great example, friends. Are we obedient to the Lord when he calls us? You know, so many times I find we hear the Holy Spirit, but then we end up making excuses trying to justify why we can't follow him right now. Philip just went because he was obedient. The second thing we see in Philip's example here with the Ethiopian eunuch is he was observant. Here's this Ethiopian guy. He had just been in Jerusalem. He's on a chariot reading the book of Isaiah. Philip hears him reading the book of Isaiah, and what does he do? He takes advantage of this great opportunity. Verse 30, Philip ran, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Friends, every single one of us has an opportunity in our daily lives to build bridges with people to have an opportunity to share the gospel. Whether it's in a simple conversation, crossing paths in a grocery store, Maybe you hear a friend talking about, you know, struggling with some sickness or, or disease. That's an open door right there. Can I pray for you? Can I, can I, can I share you about the, the God who loves you and, and wants, to forgive, wants to heal you and bring forgiveness to you? Right? You can take popular songs on the radio, popular movies, all kinds of things in pop culture that can be used to build bridges for the gospel. Okay, Philip was observant of those opportunities. And then thirdly, we see that he was opportunistic. Verse 35, Philip then opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. You see, Philip knew the word and he was able to use it to point people back to Jesus. See, this is why we do what we do here at Lakes Free. We teach the word of God because we're trying to equip you, the saints, to do the work of the ministry. That's what it's all about. Grounded in truth, growing in God's grace, going in faith. This isn't my job, this is our job. We're in it together, okay? And what a great example we see here in Philip. He knew God's word well enough to use it to point people to Jesus. And I want you to understand this was a true conversion. This wasn't like Simon. This was a true conversion. Luke tells us at the end of verse 39 that this Ethiopian eunuch went away with great joy. How do we know that? Philip was gone. Who told Luke that? Well, we know that because history attests that the church in North Africa grew like a wildfire in the early centuries after Jesus' life and resurrection. And interestingly, tradition links much of this growth to Philip's convert. Isn't that amazing? Philip was obedient. He was observant. He was opportunistic. He shared the gospel with one man who then took the gospel into North Africa and the church spread like a wildfire all because of Philip's obedience, an average, ordinary follower of Jesus. See, friends, don't ever doubt the impact that our obedience to the Holy Spirit in sowing a simple gospel seed might have. 
We, we heard that in Erica's testimony this morning, right? Erica is here today saved and secure in Jesus Christ, serving in ministry, sharing the gospel with others so that they too might know the good news of Jesus Christ. And it all started because she had a friend who loved her enough to share the good news of Jesus with her. Who might God be calling you to share the good news of the gospel with? Who might God want to transform through your influence in their life? You see, here's the deal, friends. Somebody is going to bring the next Billy Graham to salvation. Somebody is going to lead the next J. Warner Wallace to Christ. Somebody is going to tell the next senior pastor of Lakes Free Church the good news of the gospel. And you see, throughout history, God has used the relationships between average, ordinary brothers and sisters in Christ, faithfully sharing the seed of the gospel to bring people to salvation. How amazing would it be if we had a church of people, men and women, living, serving, ministering in the mold of Philip? Just imagine what God might do through that. See, he's in a habit of taking average ordinary people and using them to advance his name and his glory. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the testimony of Philip here in Acts chapter 8. And I just pray, God, that his example might be an encouragement to each of us to go out into our lives, to look for those opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with, with the lost people in our lives, Lord. God, we pray for revival. We pray for a Holy Spirit movement in this community. And I pray, God, that you would inspire in each of us a vision, a passion, a hunger to share the good news so that many people might experience the joy that those people in Samaria experienced when Philip took the gospel to them. Encourage us, Lord. Empower us in that. Equip us. Inspire us all for your name and your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you this morning that we have our congregational meeting at noon following the service. If you'd like to stick around for that, we'd love to have you join us. If you'd like to pray with our elders, some of our elders will be here at the front of the sanctuary to pray with you. And now I leave you with these words from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God bless you. Amen.